You started that. Did you know that? One of the things I love about Mill City is it finds its way to be at the beginnings of something catalytic. And it seems like we're at the beginnings of something that with, uh, in my backyard. If you don't know about that, we have a website, inmybackyard.com. And I would love to give you a special announcement today. I'm not supposed to give it to you yet, but I'm going to break the rules and give it to you. Uh, we've been working hard to see how we could amplify the message of what's possible in people's backyard. And uh, myself and some of our team applied for a grant from AARP, and we were awarded $27,000 that's launching this week to enhance the message of what God is doing in people's backyards through uh, accessory dwelling units that help combat uh, the housing crisis and help people from lapsing into homelessness. You all started that. It's an amazing journey. Here's what you can do next to help us in the journey. I brought along a QR code. We just launched our social media this weekend, Instagram and Facebook. So pull out your smartphone if you want to, scan that, and we need a lot more followers. And you guys are great to be the first ones to follow those. And there's some cool announcements that will come, some of which you already know about because I spilled the beans already, that will come out this Wednesday and some other things. So follow us there. We're also on Facebook. Mill City just posted this video you saw, so you can follow the MB page on Facebook as well. It's exciting to see uh, what God is up to. If you want more updates on the construction of ADUs, either in our backyard at the Mill City Commons or in one of our people's backyards, I'm happy to chat after uh, the service with you uh, and tell you more about the projects we got going. Sound good? Let me pray and just welcome the Holy Spirit into the time we have uh, to approach God's word together and try to learn something and glean something from his voice today. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I, just standing in this room, I'm reminded of how you've led our communities. It's humbling, God. Holy Spirit, would you speak through your word, would you speak through the words that you've given me? May I decrease and may you increase, God. Would you share something that challenges us, that brings us closer to your heart, that centers us on your love for us? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I got a question for you all. You all love questions at Mill City. What is the difference between humility and humiliation? I learned a lesson about this my sophomore year of college during the summer. I went back to my small hometown in northern Wisconsin, and I got an invite from a friend to be on the church softball team. And it was a, bar, a small town, so bar and church league. And I was getting pumped. I was getting excited because here was my chance, coming back from my sophomore year of college, to prove that I still had it. My athletic years were not over when I was done with the high school soccer team. This was a new chance, a new birth. I'm setting this up great, aren't I? So the day came. I came up to bat, first pitch. I had visualized. I had gone through all of the things. I knew that the first swing was going over the fence. Boy, that pitch came in, and I swung hard. And it sailed like two feet out of the infield gets worse. I took off towards first base, and I'm just like, doesn't matter. I'm going to get to first base. I heard and felt something pop right here. I made it two steps in my glorious softball season. 
of the summer of my sophomore year of college. And obviously my hamstring was hurt, but there was a lot more that was hurt as well. And I learned something valuable that day. Sometimes the difference between humility and humiliation in the face of a failure or struggle is the hope that we're holding on to. What we're holding on to in the midst of that failure. You don't have to live long in life to know that life is full of failure. Life is full of disappointment and trouble. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes the world fails us. Sometimes someone we love fails us. But sometimes, or, or the, what becomes one of life's most pressing questions is how we navigate, how we walk through that failure, and what it reveals about us and how we respond. And it seems like how we respond to those situations in our life sometimes makes the difference between us walking forward in humility or walking forward in shame and humiliation and getting stuck in a cycle like that. Jesus put it this way, in this life you will have trouble. He made no claims that we would be free of trouble when we bind our life with his. And this whole series this summer, I've loved listening in on, and there's been some great sermons uh, talking about the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel is really a book of a people trying to grapple with a season of failure, a season of trouble in their own lives. This is the, the people of Israel experiencing something called exile, where they've been taken from their homes, where they've... Uh, their place of worship has been destroyed. All that they were comfortable with is no longer present to them. And they've been shipped off to this empire, this Babylonian empire that doesn't get their customs, doesn't respect it, and they're trying to figure out what it means. They're trying to figure out how to make a way through it. They're trying to figure out how to cling to God's voice in the midst of it, and they're trying to pick up the broken pieces of their collective lives and ask how do we move forward? Enter Daniel, our hero of the book, who represents the best of those processings, the best of how Israel can respond to the moment. And in the middle of this book, we get a cautionary tale about humility, a cautionary tale about humiliation, and it's a tale about two kings. Now, I'm a pretty decent uh, Bible interpreter and explainer, but I don't think I could do two chapters right now. So I'm going to, in the spirit of how these were originally given, maybe just tell you the stories of Daniel chapter 4 and 5 and not go through, through them word by word. But I'd encourage you, when you have some time to read the Bible this week, go back and read them and uh, enjoy the beautiful nuance of the storytelling. This is a, uh, a story of two kings, a dad and a son, a king who loses his mind, and one that loses his life and his kingdom. We start chapter 4, uh, and it's introduced as a letter from the king Nebuchadnezzar. So the author of Daniel is like writing a letter as a way of telling the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And it starts off really interestingly, not what you would expect from the kingdom of Babylon, this heathen kingdom that's the most powerful kingdom in the time. He says... I write to you from a place of privilege in my cool palace to tell you that Yahweh God reigns over all. Like not something that would easily be uttered over someone's lips that's a ruler in that context. 
And he goes on to explain, after praising God with this hymn, goes on to explain this dream that he has. And if you've been paying attention in the Daniel series, you know this guy Neb has dreams, and he needs answers for his dreams. And at this point in the story, he's got his answer man, and that's Daniel. Daniel comes and he says, Daniel, please interpret this dream. Daniel spends some time taking in the dream, and Nebuchadnezzar tells him the dream. He says, this dream, I'm sleeping, and then all of a sudden I see this tree. This tree is huge, it's vast, and it feeds all the animals around it, and it provides sustenance for everyone within eyesight of this tree. But then the dream turns into a nightmare, and this angel shows up and says, cut down the tree. And that's just what happens. This tree gets chopped down, and then all this weird stuff happens to it, like bronze and silver get put over it, and then it gets rained on a bunch, and it's just this stump sitting there. What does it mean? And you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar waking up and being, like, tormented by this dream. And he tells this to Daniel, and he's like, all right, you're my guy. Please tell me what this means. And Daniel goes, you're not going to like this. You're the tree. You're the tree. The tree represents the power and the dominion that God has given you over this earth, that uh, the kingdoms of which you lead give sustenance to all these people. And later on, he says, but you've chosen to use that to oppress the poor. He says, please turn from that way so you don't turn into that stump. And what it means to turn into that stump is that you're going to lose what you have now and be cast out of the kingdom and into the wilderness for a season and experience rain and live like a wild animal. Just glowing news to tell the most powerful king, right? And the king basically doesn't listen. He's like, all right, cool. Thanks for the interpretation. A year passes by, and there's a cool morning. I'm I'm adding some stuff here, obviously. Maybe it was a hot morning. I don't know what the weather in Babylon was like. And he stands out in his palace on the terrace, and he looks over his kingdom, and he utters these words, Look what I have built. And it says, in that moment, he lost his sanity. In that moment, he basically goes mad. And it's up to us to interpret what happens there. We might contextualize some things. But he basically loses his mind. The dream comes true. He's no longer able to function in his role as a leader of the kingdom. He's cast out into the wilderness. He lives like a wild man for like seven years. And then it says next that after those seven years, there's this moment where he looks up to heaven and he starts praising God and his sanity returns. And out of that, he writes this letter from which this story comes, where he praises God as the king of kings, the one who leads over all generations. And at the bottom of the letter, it says this line, talking about God. And those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. That's king number one. Next, his son comes along, generation later. And we cut, hard cut in this movie to a scene, this party scene, like thumping music. I don't know what the music was like in Babylon, but it was probably thumping. And this is the best party to be at. And it's lavish. And it's all about one dude, and his name is Belshazzar. And it's a party for him. And at some point in the party, he decides to whip out these cups, these silver, amazing cups, silver and gold cups that his dad 
pillaged from the temple in Jerusalem when he took over the Israelites. And he said, let's drink and celebrate how this God is meaningless. And he starts this process of mocking Yahweh by serving everyone, including concubines, out of these cups. And in that moment, a miracle happens, and a hand shows up and starts writing words on the wall. And everybody is freaked out, obviously. Has that ever happened to you? I didn't think so. A hand just shows up and starts writing on the wall. And of course, he's freaking out. He's like, i got to figure out what it's writing. I can't understand the writing on the wall. He's like, I think I remember this guy, Daniel, that my dad used in these tricky situations. And he summons Daniel to come tell him what the words on the wall mean. And Daniel shows up, and before he even gets to work interpreting it, he's like, Belshazzar, you have forgotten the story of your dad, haven't you? You've forgotten the moment when he was humbled by God in the wilderness, haven't you? He's like, I'll tell you what the words mean, but you're not going to like it. They essentially mean your days are numbered. That there's been a judgment rendered on your leadership, and it hasn't measured up. And this very night, your kingdom will be taken over. And then the story ends like super abruptly, and it just casually says, and that night he was killed and the Medes took over his kingdom. Next chapter. <laughs> what are we to do with these cautionary tales? What were the Israelites trying to communicate when they told these stories? I imagine them telling them to their children around camp, maybe not their children, uh, their preteens around campfires or something like that as cautionary tales, as the things that they learned in the midst of their exile. And so this begs the question, what did the Israelites learn? Christian Ann and I were talking about this and she said that, she's like, you know, sometimes it's easier to learn what's going on in your story by observing what's wrong in someone else's story. And I don't know if she was implying I need to do that in my life more. or, um, But this is what's going on here. They're telling a story of Babylon to process what's going on in their life. And earlier I said, what's the difference between humility and humiliation, the hope that we're holding on to in the midst of what we experience? And it's interesting to ask the question, what are Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar hoping for? What's motivating them? What's propelling their life? What's propelling their response to God's presence in the world? If we were to look at those moments where Nebuchadnezzar said, I built this, what was he trying to prove in that moment? When we look at Belshazzar and he's throwing this wicked party that's mostly about himself, what is he trying to prove in that moment? What are they hoping for? If we look hard enough at Israel's story, it's actually the very things that they were hoping in that got them in the situation of exile in the first place. They said, our kingdom is great. I'm not sure we need the leadership of Yahweh anymore. Let's employ some kings to lead us so we're like the rest of the nations. I'm not sure that Yahweh has to be exclusively worshipped in the temple anymore. I think we can let these other temples be set up for God. And there is this mocking of Yahweh that happens that leads to some of this. What they see in Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar's story is what they humbly come to see in their own story. That their stories eventually became about themselves. And they forgot who they were and whose they were. They forgot who they were and whose they were. 
So what does this mean for us, the people who, you know, nowadays just tear their hamstring in softball games? What does this mean for our lives? Failure can be revelatory. It can be a great picture. Or it can reveal a lot in us. And you know, although stories of kings are distant from our day, we live in a context that invites us subtly and overtly to build our own kingdoms all the time. And sometimes we get into the thinking that the best pinnacle of life is for us to stand over what we've built and say, look at what I've built. Sometimes we receive implicit messages that the way that we thrive and flourish is for people to come to our party to look at what we're doing. I'm a guest preacher, but can I still have a soapbox moment? Is it okay? Does anybody have a soapbox with them? Do you have one handy? It's okay. I've learned as a guest preacher, you bring your own soapbox. <laughs> this one's called Brute. Um, so I'm just going to set this here. And I would like to have a moment with the men in the room. Bros? Brothers? We need a different hope. We need a hope beyond our brains, biceps, and bank accounts. So much of our lives, and I'm speaking about myself here, is wasted trying to prove something, trying to prove we're smart enough, trying to prove we're strong enough, trying to prove that we've had it, or that we've arrived, that we have it. So much violence has been inflicted on this world because of those pursuits. So much pain has entered the world because that's the motivation. And you know what? Just like the Israelites, we're striving after those things. We're trying to prove those things because we've forgotten that we belong. We're trying to prove we belong through those things. And it ends up hurting us and other people around us. I'll get off my soapbox now. If anybody wants soap, they can have that. This one's for everyone. What we're so anxious to prove in our lives by the kingdom building that we do on our own strength, Jesus has already accomplished for us. I don't know how much of my spiritual life and life I've wasted trying to prove that I'm worthy when the good news of Jesus is that we're worthy because we can be in Christ and he's already accomplished everything necessary for us. We don't have to prove anything, but yet we go about our lives anxiously trying to prove that we're worth it, that we're worthy, that we belong. And Jesus says, I have come so that you can be a part of the kingdom of God, God's family, God's kingdom that is over all kingdoms of the earth, and I've got good work for you to do. So what's at stake in this for us? What's at stake when we consider how we live into this humility. How do we pursue this in our lives? I just want to say, in the face of trouble, what makes a difference between humility and humiliation is often who and what we're hoping in. So we can ask this question. When you've got a big decision to make in your life, when there's trouble that comes to you and it's more painful than the circumstance maybe merits and you realize there's something to be learned internally, ask yourself the question, Maybe have a, a safe person in your community ask the question which, with you, am I trying to prove something? Is there something I'm trying to prove that Jesus has already 
proven for me. See, when trouble comes, and remember, Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble. And then what does he say? Take heart, for I have overcome the world. When trouble comes, fear-inspired pride becomes humiliation, which is really a violence against self and others. I have this hanging on my office wall. It's a quote. I don't know who this person is. Van, Van Zint. You got quotes that you don't really know the authors of, but they're cool. It says, comparison is an act of violence against the self. We are constantly bringing ourselves down in comparison of others because we're motivated by the fear that we don't belong. We're motivated by the fear that we may not be lovable. It's different. Jesus' promise is that we can have a different response to the trouble in our life. We can have an inspired response. A hope-inspired poise becomes humility, a sober-minded love and care for ourselves and others. Don't mistake it. Humility is not thinking super lowly of yourself. It's having sober judgment of yourself having right understanding of yourself, not too high like you're projecting something and not too low like you're protecting yourself from the world, not too high like you're showing off and not too low like you're shutting out the whole world. God intends a healthy understanding of who you are as his child who's worthy, who's been created in his image to do wonderful things in his life and who already belongs. So what does this look like in our life? You're like this, wow, wow, I think I could make a great tweet out of that, J.D., that's awesome. What does this look like in our lives? I just want to tell you all the story of your first church plant that failed. About a year and a half ago, North City was doing its best to get through the pandemic. And there was one particular Sunday where we were worshiping and doing much of this same thing and our dear member, if you remember her, she was a member of uh, Mill City as well. Connie was the only one in attendance. And that, our staff remembers that Sunday because it was a moment for us. And we're now able to come to that moment and say that was a good failure for us. We came to the realization that we were just doing things as we thought we should do them. The church that we thought we should be. When we searched a little bit deeper, we thought we were, we, we noticed, and I'll speak for myself, I noticed I was trying to prove with my brains, with my strength, with the fundraising capacity I had that I could birth this church into existence with my own will. And it had failed for reasons maybe that I had to do with, but lots of reasons for not. But regardless, I had a choice. Our team had a choice. Our launch team had a choice. What were we going to do in response to that failure? And it would have been very easy to quit. It would have been very easy to be fearful and just say, we're not worthy of this. But by the grace of God, and because this community formed us in a vision that Jesus is the leader of our lives and that we belong first before we can have to prove anything to him, we had the capacity to say, this isn't working right now, but Jesus is with us. And we can ask what Jesus would have us do. And that calm, non-anxious response to a failure created the context for a vision to emerge, gosh, I'm going to cry, for a vision to emerge 
that was like so much more us and so much more what God had called us to. And, there's, and someone once said, like, what about this dinner church thing? And that sparked something about our love and curiosity of how Jesus is present around tables. Two months later, we're like, let's just try it. We've got nothing to lose. And 20 of us showed up in a park, and we had what we now call dinner church and community dinner. And we're like, this is weird, but it also feels really great. The next week, there were 50 people. The next week, there were 75 people. By the end of the summer, there was 100 people in the park eating with us and hearing about Jesus. A year later, there are twice as many people who call North City home. That's not possible with hope, without hope-inspired humility. And I'm not saying that to celebrate me. I was, I was contemplating being done. But our team, because we knew we belonged to Jesus, was able to navigate that. I keep saying hope-inspired. What's the inspiration? In short, the inspiration is the Holy Spirit. The thing that Daniel is talking about in these dreams, the thing that the whole book of Daniel is talking about, that's pointing to, is that one day a king over all kings will come and his name will be Jesus. And Jesus has come and he came with good news. And his good news is that the kingdom is right here. And our option is to repent and believe. And not in repentance and like waving signs and shaming, but in turning and turning our attention, the focus, the, the motivation of our lives towards Jesus' family. An easy way to understand the kingdom of God is wherever in our lives God is king. When we're willing to live into that audacious faith that Jesus has the best plan for our lives, even when we don't understand it. That Jesus, even in the midst of failure and pain that's this, just so tough, we can understand that Jesus is present with us. I want to invite the band to come up. When I was uh, thinking about what this hope-inspired humility looks like in our life and the invitation to trust Jesus, to trust the Holy Spirit, to inspire our lives and to guide us through whatever trouble may come, I thought of the song that's very meaningful to me. The song is penned by, a name by, penned by an author named Horatio Spofford. Now, Horatio was a very successful lawyer in early in the 19th century. And he owned all kinds of property around Chicago. Man, like, if you want to measure people's value on their bank account, this dude had a pretty good argument for that. In the Chicago fire, every single one of his properties burned to the ground. Every single one. And he was in the process of rebuilding what his vocation was as a real estate landlord. And he said, you know what, our family just needs a vacation. And it had beautiful young children and a wife, and he sent them off to Europe, and he had a little business to take care of, and he was going to catch the next boat. On the way over to England, the boat sank. And he lost all of his children. Can you imagine? All of his children. Except for his, and his wife was saved. Can you imagine the grief, the trouble? Can you imagine the fear? Can you imagine the, all the questions that came with that? And he hurried for the next boat. He went over to England. And the captain very graciously went over the spot where the boat of his children had sank. And in that moment... 
in a moment of hope-inspired poise, he penned the words of, it is well with my soul. Where sea billows roll, a peace attendeth my soul like a river. It strikes me that in the world of trouble that we find ourselves in, in the world where we live in this now but not yet reality where God's kingdom hasn't fully come and there will be trouble, yet Jesus has overcome the world, that our world needs more of that kind of hope and poise even in the midst of unimaginable trouble from us. Because what's at stake is for us to experience the kingdom of God, experience God's dream coming true in our lives. It strikes me that Nebuchadnezzar, when he reached the point of understanding that God was sovereign over his life, he just exploded in praise. He sang. And it strikes me that maybe the best thing to, for us to do, no matter what failure, no matter what trouble, no matter what hardship besets us today, maybe the best thing for us to do is to not try to figure it out, but to let our souls sing. To let our soul say, it is well. To let our soul connect with its creator. To let our soul rest in knowing that despite what we might be experiencing, we belong in a family that is making the wrong things right. So let's sing together.